0: Thanks for joining us on Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. A one-quarter uptick in the GDP does not define the economy and the reality of people living in it. According to the Associated Press, the data shows that the falling unemployment rate and gains in home values reflect the continuation of the recovery rather than any major changes made since the Trump administration began in 2017. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, We should be able to at least agree on a set of facts that there are forces reshaping our society. The cost of housing, particularly in our cities, continues to rise. The cost of higher education, health care, and quality daycare continue to take a larger and larger part of individual and family income. Income inequality is growing. The impact of automation and AI is only in its infancy. And the freelance and gig economy and recent political moves have shattered the ability of workers to bargain collectively, all at a time when the social safety net of Medicare, Social Security, and pensions are under siege. What was once the middle class is being hollowed out. There is no question that some people are doing well in this economy, even more than the proverbial 1%, as evidenced by the fact that retail sales are up, housing sales are holding steady, and the technical unemployment numbers are low there's no question though that as the song lyrics go there's something happening here and what it is ain't exactly clear whatever it is the net result even with a blip in the gross domestic product is hurting and squeezing a lot of people we're going to talk about this today with my guest Alyssa court Alyssa writes the outclassed column for the guardian she's executive editor of the economic hardship reporting project she was a neiman fellow at harvard and has been nominated for an Emmy International Magazine Award. Her latest book is Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. It is my pleasure to welcome Alyssa Court to Radio Who, What, Why. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. How do we define the middle class today? Let's begin with with really what we mean by middle class. Well,
1: according to Pew, it's... uh People with incomes, 42000 to 125000 that's roughly 50% of U.S. households. Uh, and it also is an imaginary category, as I argue in my book, it's an idea. So to be middle class is to be stable, to secure, you weren't overreaching, you were paying your bills on time, you were, um, had a pension potentially, you owned your own home, right? You could rely on paying for your own kids' college and they'd go to college. But now 65% of U.S. households worry about paying bills. So they're, they're, out of that number, <laughs> a bunch of them are middle class.
0: And to what extent are the changes that we're seeing today and the economic problems that we see today, many of which, which you write about, and we'll, we'll talk more about them, how much of it is, in your view, an overhang from the 2008-2009 recession?
1: I think it's definitely stems from that and also from trends that started in the late 70s even, and generally an absence of a safety net for families. So some of these are long-term problems that have been with us for a while. Some of this is middle-term, as in after the recession, and, you know, I think some of this in terms of robotics and automation are just just beginning. Mm -hmm.
0: To what extent, in your view, and has this been as a result of many of these economic forces that that we can talk about? And how much of it has been as a result of deliberate policy decisions that have been made that have exacerbated this situation?
1: I think if you look at uh, tax and especially, you know, the recent tax reform, you're going to see people, say, who are self-employed who have it worse now than they did in the past. And then you have to wonder, like, this is not the natural order of things, right? Um, many middle-class people are now contract workers. That means that they don't work as, on a staff job, right? So they are often self-employed on some level, and they're going to get dinged in greater numbers. And then you are also seeing things like The cost of college doubling since 1996, public universities and private much more. So the cost of living has also increased, not keeping up with inflation for people with aspirations to the American dream. So that's not, again, natural. (laughs) You know, um, I mean, there are things that are just happening, but then there's a lot of things that we're people in this country are making happen. (laughs)
0: One of the things that that certainly has happened is that many of these changes, whether it's the gig economy, whether it's the impact Mm -hmm. of technology and and automation, and as you say, that's still in its infancy, that none of those things have been seriously addressed within the broader economic framework.
1: No, exactly. I mean, I just wrote a piece, uh, an excerpt from my book um, in Money Magazine, and I was making this point that the Trump administration is not even addressing automation seemingly at all. Um, So there's no plans, even for like, even the nominal one, like for apprenticeships or, you know, how are we going to deal with, it's going to mostly be women's jobs uh, and it will be everything from retail work to pharmacists to, uh, you know, journalists that they're coming for, the robots. We're seeing uh, robots. Moving into journalism, companies like Automated Insights, which is an oxymoron (laughs) um, that's producing copy that used to be written by human beings and now is written by uh, a digital content provider, or we see pharmacists being replaced by robots, or we see retail workers being replaced by, by robots, and the Trump administration doesn't have any plan, seemingly, for either... Retraining these workers or offering an income guarantee when their jobs
0: go. One of the things you point out also is that even those that are educated, and you talk about law school graduates and teachers and and, and adjunct college professors, that there is a problem there, too. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, one of the things that was interesting when I was talking to the adjuncts, those are professors who don't work full-time. They they do courses piecemeal, and they're not... um, they don't have health insurance. They don't work for a single university or college often. And 62% of them make something like 20000 a year. So when I, you talk to these people, you're like, wow, my own parents were university professors. They were tenured. And now today, at least 40 to 50% of college professors are adjuncts like these people. They're making $20,000 a year maybe. Uh, I met one who was living in her car. Um, this is not the image that we have of what a professor's life is.
0: It's like. How much of this goes to the heart of w- thinking about what we value and what's important as a society? I think a
1: huge amount, and I'm talking about care of different kinds in the book, that we need to reframe our our relationship to care as a society and individually, which means we have to think about uh, mothers, uh, not penalizing mothers for their uh, daycare having daycare needs or for having children at all which statistically uh, employers now pay working mothers less and it means things like we have to stop penalizing people who are educators who are in a sense caring for our society uh, by underpaying them relentlessly so the book is sort of looking at care in different guises the care of parents the care of caregivers the care of school teachers and professors, et cetera, and how they're all suffering. They're suffering, in a sense, for for having a heart.
0: What percentage of the population are we talking about in terms of of these middle-class folks who are being squeezed?
1: Well, you know, two-thirds of women with kids under six are now working. And if we think that daycare is something like 30% of a lot of people's income, that's a lot of people. I mean, that's a lot of people who are not, uh, unless you're part of the top 1% or even the top 10%, you're giving a huge amount of your income to daycare and then to housing and then to, you know, college education when your kids are old enough and your own student debt. And then to health care, which is another form of debt that a lot of the subjects I spoke to had And then in addition, 17% of U.S. workforce has unpredictable hours, which means variable schedules at their employer's discretion. So that's another way that people are squeezed, and I write about that in the book. They're squeezed in terms of their time. So they're working strange hours. They're not necessarily have secure jobs. And then they have all these pressures on their
0: checkbooks. Talk about the nexus between all of this and the numbers that we hear often, even in the mainstream media, about the unemployment numbers being low, the economy booming, mm-hmm. retail sales being up in many places, talk about that.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think if we think about long-term and short-term, I mean, short-term things are looking a little rosier, although I keep wondering, what is the quality of those jobs? I mean, when I look at other numbers, I see that people are more people are working multiple jobs than they did in 2016, so maybe the there maybe job numbers are up, but I'm wondering if those people are working many jobs or two jobs. Do they want to be? Um, are they the jobs they trained for? I mean, what I'm seeing on the ground is no, they're not the quality work that they wanted. Um, so I, I, I guess I, I am uh, suspiciously somewhat hopeful, but yet I, I I I really don't believe that this is going to last either, and. But finally, we have to think about wages. I mean, are the wages keeping up? Um, you know, are these new jobs or the old jobs that have come back as well paid as the ones that people used to have?
0: Well, they're not. I mean, statistics show that. I mean, exactly. while, while we talk about the unemployment numbers being lower, Wages certainly are stagnant, stagnant mm-hmm. and, and many of the people that are working today, even full-time, and even some of those with benefits are still being paid significantly less than mm-hmm. five years ago.
1: Yeah, and so people used to talk about something called standard of living. <laughs> one of the points I make in my book is no one talks about that anymore, you know? There's a, sort of an assumption that that's the quality of life is not really the point. It's just, oh, yeah, you finally have a job,
0: I mean, survival more than quality of life seems to be the standard today. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Talk a little bit about housing and and what your work shows you and what your reporting shows you in that regard.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, you're calling me from California, which which is some of the most expensive housing, is in the San Francisco area and San Jose, and this was the thing that was squeezing the people I spoke to. The, the most, I'd say. I mean, the Uber driving school teachers I interviewed uh, who were in San Francisco and San Jose were making each 64000 to 69000 and yet they had to drive uh, Ubers on nights and weekends and uh, grading papers at stoplights yes. because they couldn't pay the $680,000 for the apartment or the $3,000 for the apartment um to rent and they had to get roommates and you know these are middle-aged people so to me this was illustrating our uh the emergency in some of our cities for middle-class people and i'm sure you're familiar with that number that just came out that it you could be considered a lower income if you're earning $117,000 in the san francisco area how, how are you going to afford real estate in, in near where you guys are i mean how much does a house cost around Napa.
0: Well, the median price right now is about 600000 Exactly. So how is a is
1: making 69000 And in lots of places in the country, people say, oh, that's fine. But you know, no, they're, they're not even going to get a mortgage.
0: To what extent are people that are, that are being squeezed thinking about solutions needing to come from public policy?
1: You know, one of the things you see with people who are being squeezed is this decision fatigue, this kind of uh, exhaustion, and they start to just try to survive as you just put it, and they 're not always thinking what can I, you know can I see the system changes that would help me it 's more like how do I get out of this spine that i 'm in but you know some of them did some of them became um, they they saw. The, they started organizing, like one of the adjuncts I profiled, she ultimately found some success as a speech pathologist. She, she finally has a good job that she just wrote me about. But when she was in the book, her name's Bree, uh, when, when I was reporting on the last five years, she started to organize adjuncts to try to get their pay raised in inventive ways. So that, that was a system fix that she discovered. Or people would organize to try to or- live together in these co-parenting situations where they're not biologically or romantically linked, but they're, like, living in the same house together. And they did that to save on rent and raise their children together um, to save on daycare. So I felt like there were kind of an awareness of the system problems and sometimes sort of uh, patchwork fixes that were in relationship to that, um, you know, sometimes people start to organize for candidates. And I feel like in New York City, we just saw the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Queens. A very unexpected challenge. Who wants, you know, Medicare for all. And 28 years old, right, had worked as a bartender, is middle precariat, a precarious middle class person. And uh, I feel like that that's the kind of voting that comes out of being squeezed. When you realize, oh, my interests are actually aligned with other workers, and not, not just my 1% better.
0: And one of the things that we've certainly seen over the years, and it's one of the things arguably that, that's led to lack of policy in some of these areas, is individuals that have voted against their own economic interests.
1: It's true. Yeah. So we can see the Trump—I uh, mean, one thing that was very interesting to me— I run an organization called the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which was founded by Barbara Ehrenreich, and I took over in its early days. And we, um, whatever, we give grants to lower-income journalists, among other things. And we were reporting on the r- rural areas that are the poorest in this country, and I was a lot of them were Trump-voting areas. And I was thinking, did these people in Alabama and Kentucky think that Trump is going to help bring broadband, you know, or all the things that are missing from where they're at. It's keeping them poor, right? They're cut off. And uh, anyway, it was instructive.
0: Within the rural areas, talk a little bit about the desperation that that you see in those places. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my book is
1: concentrated in in non-rural areas. It's sort of urban focused, but partially because of the cost of living is so much higher in cities, so it would be more dramatic. Um, But things I have seen with the middle class is that once they're in rural areas, sometimes their life becomes more affordable, but they're cut off from centers so the, where they could be getting employment. So other problems are created, right? They're not networked anymore. They can't do their graphic art or their law or whatever. They've moved far afield to, into these uh, agrarian places so they can actually buy a house, but they can't then get the jobs that they need. And that's, that's a kind of, familiar refrain with some of the middle precariat in rural areas that they're uh, cut off from from work.
0: One of the things that we're seeing today, and it's unclear how all this is going to play out, it hasn't happened to scale yet, but kind of a shifting of the population that people in some of these urban areas, San Francisco being a good example, that have gotten so outrageously expensive are starting to move to more rural parts of the country. And with the possibility of gentrification happening in some of these rural areas,
1: um, that's interesting. Um, that could be kind of like a a new uh, naturalism. I don't know. It's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I've heard about that outside of um, Denver, where people, the the very poor, often the the drug-addled and quite poor people, moving um, into uh, the countryside outside of Denver because it had gotten so expensive, and um, yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen.
0: What exists in your reporting in terms of the aspirational nature of some of these people that are being squeezed? Because there's a sense in in, in some of the stories you tell of people that have given up, that that the frustration has become so overwhelming.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there is uh, I don't know, in in a way, I don't know if they've given up, but sometimes they're going in for the wrong things. Like, I write about this what I call the second act industry, which are these uh, certificate programs and for-profit graduate schools that sometimes uh, prey on the anxiety of middle-aged people who've been laid off or downsized, and then they go into these these people in their 40s will go into these new programs, and then they'll wind up in debt and then they'll get hired at a lower wage than before or maybe not at all, and so then they'll be carrying around this debt. So I don't know if that's an absence of aspiration or if it's just been misdirected into things that aren't actually helpful just because we've been told education, education, education. And as I said, for some people, like that academic who became a speech pathologist in my book, it works, and then for other people it really doesn't. So we need to be careful uh, about that, and I think – also, one thing that I've noticed people doing is losing themselves in television. Like we talk, yes. I talked about that in the book. Like, and I've done that myself, where you start watching this television uh, that's all about the one percent, about the wealthiest that are acting with impunity, and maybe hedge fund guys and they're some slightly villainous, but the shows that they're about love them and treat the you know, the shows kind of valorizes people and kind of in an opiated stupor, we're watching these shows <laughs> of escaping our own precariousness into the, into this hyper wealth. So that I talked to a few people who felt like that, who were just like, I just Netflix binge, you know? Um, and it can be a tendency, right? That's like, this is, that's where the aspiration starts to uh, winnow away. Mm-hmm.
0: And and part of that comes from this widening income inequality gap that we see that you write about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think below all of this is income inequality. Like, that's kind of coursing under this. uh, You have, uh, you know, the top Americans now averaging 40 times more income than the bottom 90%. Uh, You have increasingly contingent work uh, for those... People in the bottom 90% who are working part-time or piecemeal and multiple jobs, as I said before. And then, you know, you have less mobility. So one interesting stat I came across that's in my book is people born in the 1940s were almost certain to do better by, than their parents by the time they were 30 years old in the 70s. People born in the 1980s, who are now in their 30s, have a 50-50 chance of doing better than their parents. So there's been a, it's a downward slope. It's a downward gradient, which is pretty intense. And I see it in my own life with the people I know, you know, who, whose parents had pensions and some kind of security, and, you know, there, it isn't there anymore.
0: Where do you see all of this leading?
1: Well, I'm hopeful about certain things. I mean, I'm hopeful about... Uh, greater solidarity. As I said, these new kind of candidates who are cropping up, who are marshalling this local energy. I'm optimistic about things like universal pre-K, which is launched in New York City on a mass scale and 3K. And I think more programs like that, um, where the uh, municipality pays for the education of its youngest citizens, uh, that makes me happy, (laughs) optimistic. And I think if we look around also, there's other movements that we can feel good about, and uh, we have to work to make sure they go the right direction, but like Me Too or Gay Marriage. And when you look at that, you think, well, why couldn't there be things like universal pre-K or maternity leave for more than, right now, it's only 14% of the population um, of, you know, uh, paid leave jobs. uh, That's that's only 14% for people. But um, what if you had 50% of people had paid leave, or 100%. Um, and then you you think of, oh, it's impossible. It's, oh, it's pie in the sky. And then you think, well, no, look at me too. It's overnight. these norms have changed and shifted, and that's all it takes, really.
0: Talk a little bit about generational differences that you see and how millennials in particular are looking at all of this.
1: Well, one of the things I came across when I was writing this is a lot of people who were millennials who are by now in their 30s and they, you know... But in terms of their years, could have children or be planning families, but uh, they couldn't afford it. And I'm getting emails since the book came out from people with MBAs and, you know, people, like business development who say they're not having children yet because they can't afford it. So that's interesting. I mean, I think for my generation, and I guess I'm Generation X, uh, we were less aware of – you know, we went ahead and had families, and then we realized that it was going to be really hard. You know, we didn't quite realize it until we had kids. But they're realizing it before because they, they came of age during the recession. So I think it's affecting the rates that people are having children, it's definitely affecting home homeownership. Um, so that, those were interesting exchanges that I was having.
0: It's interesting also to think about where all of this has to circle back in terms of the broader economy. As more and more people are struggling, as more and more people are hitting the wall, that it has to have broader economic impact.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, more and more people who are dissatisfied and, you know, hopefully will start to organize less fractiously and vote differently. I mean, that that would be the best possible thing to come out of this. Um, I don't know if it's possible, but um, and I also wonder what's going to happen to jobs. Uh, You know, I write about this in my book, doing what you love, which is something that you know, people of my parents' generation who were a little hippie-ish, right? <laughs> They'd say, follow your dreams, your, your parachute, you know, your, what color is your parachute, and um, do what you love, and be creative, and now it's a complicated calculus, because I have a daughter who loves to draw and write, but I'm not saying, oh, yeah, go ahead, be a writer. <laughs> I try to give her, I say, you know, be an architect, uh, or even that, who knows, but, you know, be a coder, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, make drawings on the side, and these are the kinds of, um, you know, calculations, emotional and professional calculations that we're being asked to make now.
0: Alyssa Court, her book is Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Alyssa, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.